the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 15, Friends with Benefits, The India-U.S. Story, in conversation with author Seema Sirohi, Washington-based columnist for the Economic Times of India. Our guest today has spent over 30 years in Washington, D.C. as a journalist covering the relationship between India and the United States. And during that time, she's witnessed a sea change in how our two countries interact with each other. She joins us from her office in Washington, D.C. Hello, Seema, and welcome back to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me, Jim. My pleasure. Seema, what is it like to be a foreign correspondent in Washington? And tell us about your 30-year career in Washington. Okay, I know it sounds exotic, but it's a lot of hard work because in Washington, D.C., there are hundreds, if not thousands, of correspondents from around the world. So it becomes, uh, you know, very competitive to try to get attention, to get time with uh, U.S. officials. So it's hard work. But also very exciting because Washington is like the news capital of the world. So much of what happens in the world, Washington has something to say about it, you know, whichever administration is in power. So it's, uh, I've really enjoyed it, but it's been hard to try to glean information. Another thing that people may not know is you know, there's no dearth of information. There is a lot of written available information. But as a single correspondent mm-hmm. uh, that I spent most of my life working as for various Indian newspapers, you had to plow through, you know, so many documents, try to find something that would be interesting to your readers. Yes. So it's hard work. <laughs> okay. Well, obviously, you, you've been very successful at it. And Seema, the title of your book, Friends with Benefits, is an apt description of the relationship between our two countries. Friends with the benefit of a $160 billion a year trading relationship, technology transfers, cultural exchanges, but no formal alliance between the two. And it wasn't that long ago that the two countries were barely friends. How did India and the United States get off on the wrong foot almost from the beginning? It's a very good question, but we must remember that we didn't get off on the wrong foot from the beginning. So the beginning is 1947, when India became independent of uh, British colonial rule, and India was divided into India and Pakistan, as you know. India and the U.S. were on good terms because survival of India's democracy was seen as a goal in itself for the U.S. to to kind of counter the Soviet Union's narrative that communism is a better system. So 
India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was a key personality on the global stage. And uh, various US presidents would consult him on various issues of the day, including, and many people may not know this, Nehru was very important in negotiating peace during the Korean War and in actually working out the armistice agreement. But then things began to sour during the height of the Cold War uh, in the 60s and 70s. It is at that time that India and the U.S. began to drift apart and started to inhabit two different planets, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, India was a non-aligned country, meaning it wasn't in either camp, either the U.S. camp or the Soviet camp, because that was um, the kind of uh, credo of the countries that had just become independent, you know, after long years of being colonized. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. perceived India somehow as to be closer to the Soviet Union. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. was very close to Pakistan, mm -hmm. which... India did not have a good relationship with mm -hmm. immediately the independence. There had been a war, if you remember, and they occupied uh, Pakistan occupied part of uh, Kashmir that actually belongs to India. So geopolitically, the U.S. aims in South Asia were more aligned with Pakistan and Pakistan was more willing to uh, kind of do the U.S. bidding. So my book tracks the slow return to normalcy from the late 1980s to now, how India and the U.S. again became good friends. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to the, to the 1980s because you've given us a good overview of the early days of the relationship and then the parting of the ways, if you will, during the height of the Cold War, uh, the U.S. leaning towards Pakistan India leaning a little more towards uh, USSR, although as a non-aligned country under Nehru and Mrs. Gandhi. Let's come back to India's strategic autonomy, because during the 1980s, when the relationship began to get back on track, that's always within the context of India maintaining a strategic autonomy. As, as, as you said, Pakistan was more pliant towards U.S. policy goals, and India never was. And I guess if we accept that India has a certain strategic autonomy in its perception of its place in the world and on the world stage, India would probably never be as pliant as Pakistan was towards U.S. foreign policy goals. So give us a sense how, how India is maintaining that strategic autonomy but at the same time, the two our two countries are coming closer together. See, India is a very large country. So trying to look at it through the prism of what happens in Pakistan or what U.S. is able to convince Pakistan to do is not the right way to go about it or to look at it. India looks at itself as a civilizational power, as an ancient country with its own traditions and a lot to offer to the world. It's too bad that Western historians have written history with, with a certain perspective and have ignored so much of 
strategic thinking, ancient strategies that Indian sages had, etc. So India will never be a camp follower, so to say. So it is able to maintain autonomy because that's what it feels after 200 years of colonization from the British. It's never going to be part of any one group. But within that, India understands that you have to operate with um, in a world where there are countries that are good in terms of, uh, you know, your strategic interests and countries that work to undermine you. So in that sense, uh, U.S. and India have found that they have a lot of common interests. And within the parameters of this strategic autonomy, short of being treaty allies, India and the U.S. are doing a lot more than they ever did before, including in the defense sphere. Mm -hmm. What happened during the 1980s and 1990s to bring the United States and India closer together? Of course, uh, during the 1990s, we had the end of the Cold War, so I assume that would be a contributing factor. But what were some of the other factors that, uh, that enabled our two countries to come closer together during the 80s and 90s? I think one, especially during the 90s, one major factor was American disillusionment uh, with Pakistan. Because if you remember, after 9-11, U.S. troops were fighting the um, Taliban in Afghanistan. And Pakistan was the country that was the supply route for U.S. troops. So during that time, the Americans noticed how uh, the Pakistani army was taking advantage of them and actually playing both sides, mm. working with the Taliban to undermine U.S. Uh, and American troops were getting killed. So there was a lot of opening of the eyes, a lot of realization in Washington, D.C. that Pakistan is just taking advantage of um, American situation and needs to the extent that during President Obama's term, the time when they uh, killed Osama bin Laden, the American troops, they didn't share that information with Pakistan. So Pakistan didn't know uh, that American troops are coming and they have found where Osama bin Laden lives absolutely next to a Pakistani military academy. Mm. So, for, uh, you know, so these were all very revealing moments. Then on the positive side, I would say the um, India's uh, opening up of its economy worked in India's favor. India is a large country, large economy, so a lot of opportunities. So American companies started to look at India differently from a very protectionist way of thinking. India began uh, did some economic reforms in the early 90s that created a lot of interest uh, in Washington. Mm -hmm. So these are two broad uh, reasons, but there were many smaller reasons as well. Let's keep to the economic story for the moment. Today, the U.S.-India trade relationship is about $160 billion a year. 
contrasting that with the U.S.-China relationship, that relationship is $700 billion a year, so quite a bit bigger. But on the other hand, the U.S.-India relationship is growing at a, at a pretty fast clip. Also, just to put in perspective our, our GDPs, India's GDP is $3.6 trillion. Japan's GDP is, these are two, uh, 2023 numbers, Japan's GDP is $4.4 trillion. Germany's GDP is $4.1 trillion. China is $19.4 trillion. And the United States is $26.9 trillion. Now, interestingly, what we're seeing, we're seeing in the last year or two, we're seeing India enjoying very high rates of growth in their economy. And there's, there's, no, telling, uh, there's no telling how uh, quickly India's economy is growing, and we're going to see that in increased GDP numbers over the next, certainly over the next decade. Give us a sense of this burgeoning economic relationship between the United States and India. It's exciting to see, and India has some some unique uh, contributions to offer to uh, the global tech industry. To uh, give us a sense of the the economic picture that we currently see between the United States and India and where it's headed. I think he's, it's headed in the right direction. And as uh, India opens up more and more, there'll be more opportunities. Currently, it's the fifth largest economy, but Prime Minister Modi has said that uh, in a few years, it'll be the third largest economy. So he's doing a lot of things in the economic realm. Firstly, digitization. That's actually been one of the best stories of India in recent times. Mm-hmm. How quickly after COVID, uh, how quickly Indians, even very poor Indians who uh, did not, you know, haven't gone to school, are not very literate, are using their cell phones and actually becoming digital citizens of the world. And a lot of banking is now online and things like that. So the digital public infrastructure that under Modi has really boomed is, I think it's one of the most revolutionary stories that not many people know about. So much so that now France is looking to connect with India. So if you are an Indian tourist in France, you can just pay from your own bank account when you're eating out in Paris, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Singapore has done that. United Arab Emirates has done that. And India is in talks with many, many uh, countries to sort of provide this infrastructure, digital uh, public infrastructure called DPI, at very, very low or almost no cost as a public good. So I think those kinds of things, you know, people, uh, countries in Africa are very interested in it. Uh, things are happening that are that I think might help India leapfrog and, uh, you know, sort of leapfrog over some of the stages of development. But what we need to do is do more manufacturing in India. 
as this whole business of delinking and uh, decoupling from china goes on other countries india being one of them i have to step up and uh, create you know other become the world's factories you know and not just have one factory in the world where everyone's dependent on them because as as covid proved that's not a good situation to be in us and india are going to do are doing a lot of things in uh, developing resilient supply chains and uh, friend shoring where you only go to countries that you trust mm-hmm. and you make things in those countries or you outsource to those countries so yeah things i think things are on the up and up in that sense Let's come back to the to the issue of technology transfer because in your book you cited that there was a time when technology transfer from the United States to India was difficult if not um, next to impossible but all of that changed under George W Bush the with the civilian nuclear power agreement uh, uh, give us a sense of that sea change in U.S. technology transfer policy with India, because you highlighted in the book, and in a sense, the the work that George W. Bush did in transferring technology is kind of the the basis, if you will, for some of the economic uh, developments that we're seeing today. To clarify, the India-U.S. civil nuclear deal agreed to in 2005 during President Bush's term remove the biggest hurdle both governments had identified in terms of collaboration so you're right that before that technology was not allowed to be sold especially sophisticated technology to india because india had not signed the nuclear non proliferation treaty mm-hmm. which is called npt for short what the treaty says that is only five countries are allowed to have nuclear weapons and nobody else can have that mm-hmm. so india refused to sign that treaty saying that it it's discriminatory who gives you the power or, or you know wherewithal or why should india follow this mm-hmm. we will do what our security demands so india never signed that treaty this treaty was like in um, i don't remember when it came came through but it was one of the main reasons so the americans would always ask india sign this treaty and india would say no so <laughs> and uh, during uh, president bush's time mm-hmm. the americans decided look every time we try to do something with india this npt comes in the way let's find a work around it mm-hmm. so what the agreement did in 2005 is to recognize india as a de facto nuclear power so apart from the five india became the sixth unofficial nuclear power the americans led this whole initiative the europeans joined in russians were okay with it also the only people who were upset were the chinese yes. because that meant that india was now on an equal footing uh, with them mm-hmm. because the five nuclear powers as you know are us uk france russia and china mm-hmm. nobody else is allowed to be called a nuclear weapons power whether they have the technology or not uh, so they're not allowed to have the nuclear bomb so 
what happened was that President Bush decided to do this, and it was a very brave decision. He faced a lot of opposition in Washington, D.C., and so did the Prime Minister of India at the time, Manmohan Singh. Lot of opposition because on the Indian side, people felt, "Oh, you're becoming a camp follower of the Americans, and you're going to lose your strategic autonomy." And on the American side, the criticism was, "You're breaking a perfectly well-functioning nuclear uh, non-proliferation." regime for a country like India, which is not a treaty ally, which is, you know, uh, we've not had such great relations with for a long time, mm-hmm. etc. But so then that happened. After that, the two countries started talking about more and more technology transfer to the point where we are today, where India and the US have agreed that General Electric will transfer technology for the jet engine uh, to India and build those engines in India, which ha- was announced in June of this year when Modi came uh, for a state visit. So it's been an arc, you know, uh, from nothing to a very good place. So in my book, I track all this, that how difficult it was even to buy a supercomputer from America say no, you know, because you haven't uh, signed the NPT. Anything you wanted to buy, the answer was no. So uh, India was quite, uh, you know, in a tough spot, mm-hmm. uh, developing its own supercomputer called Param. So, uh, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but now things are much, much better. Well, that's, uh, you know, the, the sharing of technology, advanced technology with a friend, which of course India is, and also India is is a leading uh, player when it comes to the information age, information technology. Uh, and the, the next iteration of information technology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, 6G. Of course, we've just recently seen the success of uh, the Indian Space Research Organization landing that spacecraft on the south pole of the moon. India is a science superpower. And why should the United States not uh, collaborate with such a, a science superpower? San Francisco, for instance, is a sister city with Bengaluru in southern India, which, of course, is the, uh, the, the high-tech capital of India, but but let's just come back to to the importance of of the of technology in the relationship. Number one, and also let's talk about the role of the four million Indian Americans who live here in the United States, uh, who've come to the United States, been born in the United States. We have two presidential candidates of Indian extraction who are running for the Republican nomination. The success of the Indian American community in the United States, whether in business, academics, politics, finance, banking, you name it, has been spectacular. What role does the Indian American community play, do you think, in expanding this friend relationship between India and the United States? I think they play a tremendous role. Uh, there are 4 million Indian Americans now uh, of uh, people of Indian origin. Uh, 
they have been very important in bridging the gap between the US and India. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a few thousand highly qualified Indians who came in the 1960s, uh, when the gates were first opened with the Immigration Act of 1965 and national origin quotas were abolished, today we have the second largest immigrant group as Indians. Mm-hmm. They come there after Mexicans and ahead of the Chinese. Mm. And another thing to note is, unlike the low-skilled immigrants from India who came in the 19th century and the early 20th century, those who came in the 1960s and later were professionals and highly skilled. Mm-hmm. They made a place for themselves here. They were all educated. They went, uh, did research. They got their PhDs and many of them lived here and, you know, never went back. Became important academics, uh, policymakers, advisors, etc. So I think the community has really grown in stature, mm-hmm. political clout, uh, in every way imaginable. Uh, now you have five Indian Americans in the House of uh, Representatives. Mm-hmm. The vice president is of mm-hmm. Indian origin. Then, as you said, two Republican candidates are Indian Americans, Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. So no wonder once, you know, President Biden joked that Indian Americans are everywhere. <laughs> He's right. In in fact, he his administration has more than 150 Indian Americans in various policy positions. Mm-hmm. Very, very senior. As you know, like the Surgeon General is Indian, Indian American. Uh, I mean, I can't even begin to name. There are so many. They are an indispensable bridge. And I think I want to tell your listeners about uh, one small funny story that they may not know about from the year 2000 uh, that how this IT sector and how India became identified with being an IT superpower so what was happening was um, that in the year 2000 in 1999 there was a fear of uh, what was called the Y2K problem it was Mm -hmm. called the bug in various computers people thought that when the clock turns on midnight of january 1 the year 2000 Mm -hmm. computer programs would not recognize the year and might read it as 1900 instead of the year 2000 Mm -hmm. so the software needed to be updated in all the computers and was it uh, in a language called COBOL, if I remember correctly? So they needed many, many software uh, computer experts, and India supplied them. And uh, so many Indians came on H1B visas to fix those problems because literally there was a fear. This was during the Clinton administration that this will happen, everything will shut down, services won't be able to, you know, electricity, water, this, that, and the other. 
but so a lot of qualified people uh, were needed and they came from many of them came from india mm-hmm. and it was a bonanza for indian it firms and they were able to make a mark in the us uh, after that so today you have you know so many companies are headed by indian americans like google microsoft and they've made a name for themselves mm-hmm. Without question. Let's move on to foreign policy and the shifting sands of geopolitics. Uh, Within the last few years, a new relationship called the Quad has been established. That includes the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. We talked earlier about India's strategic autonomy, and India is not in any alliance or treaty arrangement with the United States. But let's talk about the Quad. What is the, when was it created? What is the purpose of the Quad? And what impact will, does the Quad or will the Quad have in geopolitics? Quad is a grouping of four democracies. It is the U.S., India, Japan, Australia. The idea first came in 2004, when there was a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And these four countries had navies that they, uh, the navies of these four countries cooperated in delivering relief. That mission ended in 2005, but something stuck in the leaders' minds. And then there was this idea that uh, Japan floated that we should actually form kind of a grouping but the Chinese objected to that. So the idea died. Then it was uh, resurrected 2017. And slowly, slowly, it has now become a very, very important group uh, in the Indo-Pacific as one of the main groups, which, short of calling itself an alliance, is kind of a front Uh, a united front to send a signal to China that we are together and Mm -hmm. you cannot dominate Asia. Because see, the rise of China, which the world was promised once upon a time by Deng Xiaoping, the rise of China will be peaceful. It hasn't been peaceful Mm -hmm. under Xi it has anything but been peaceful. China is uh, making aggressions against so many countries in its neighborhood, including India. Yes. As you know that we have a very tense border situation since 2020 when uh, Chinese soldiers killed uh, 20 Indian soldiers on the border. And we have thousands of troops lined up on the border in a very tense situation. Other countries are experiencing Chinese aggression as well. So this grouping is important to show the other countries in Asia that there is an alternative beyond China. Mm -hmm. Besides, you don't have to fall under their sway. And this alternative is presented to you by democratic countries where there's rule of law, where if your companies come and work um, or if their companies go and work, Uh, in those countries that rules will be followed. You will not be under pressure as China is known to do to try to get intellectual property out of these, uh, uh, out of U.S. companies. So Quad is an initiative that is growing uh, more and more 
and becoming stronger every day. They do a lot of maritime cooperation because, as you know, the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean is now seen as one strategic space Mm -hmm. in which India is on the one end and Australia on the other. Let's come back to Prime Minister Modi. It seems as though Prime Minister Modi is uh, very high energy, very engaged with all aspects of Indian foreign policy, investment. We've seen him on several occasions on his trips to Washington, both uh, during public administrations and democratic administrations. He has been kind of a spark plug in my estimation, for for this uh, this new, more uh, ambitious, expansive India, is he viewed that way in India itself? Yes, he's viewed as the most pro-U.S. prime minister we've had, and he carries less baggage than previous prime ministers. Let's say he is less encumbered by his party because uh, his party, the BJP, is known for you know for being free enterprise and all that. Mm-hmm. Although in some senses, the right wing in India also meets the left wing on certain issues like um, labor rights and things like that. To come back to Modi, he used to travel, you know, before he joined uh, politics full-time. He has uh, traveled through the U.S. Uh, extensively and has a has a feel for the United States. He can see the development here. He can see the, what a technological superpower the U.S. is. So he obviously wants the same for India. Mm-hmm. And In terms of India's development needs, uh, the U.S. is now uh, an indispensable partner. Another big reason in Modi's tilt towards the U.S. has been the deterioration in the India-China relations, as I was explaining earlier. Mm -hmm. Modi tried to, uh, when he came to power in 2014, he tried to deal with Xi Jinping as an equal, but Um, We just have been having incursions from China after incursion. Every other year, there has been a Chinese incursion into what India uh, believes is its territory. As you know, that the border is not demarcated, it's contested, it's disputed. So that's another reason for him to be much closer to the U.S. because... um, he needs India needs the U.S. to balance an increasingly aggressive China. India is now quite, uh, you know, short of being a treaty ally, more and more aligned with the U.S. Mm-hmm. compared to what it was in the 80s or 90s. And of course, next week, Prime Minister Modi will host the G20 in India when the 20 largest economies in the world come together. In India, of course, President Biden will be attending. But I noticed that just yesterday, uh, President Xi Jinping of China said that he would not be going and he'd be sending his prime minister. What do you make of that? Is Xi Jinping basically trying to rain on India's party because 
Modi has made this G20 as a major, major thing for India. You know, throughout the year, there have been events and meetings and uh, the whole, it's kind of a national celebration that uh, India is president of the G20 and it's time to celebrate. Of course, it's highly political also because next year we have elections. So he's played uh, this whole thing very cleverly. But to come back to Xi Jinping, um, he is, yeah, it's a snub, I would say, trying to act uh, like he is very important. And because President Biden had also said that he looks forward to meeting Xi Jinping in Delhi uh, during the G20. So he's choosing to stay away and goes only where he is assured of complete hero worship. Like, went for the BRIC summit in Johannesburg a few days back, right? And there he was treated like the emperor. And that's uh, what he wants. In in India, he would not have been. He would have been one of the 20 leaders. If anyone would have got more importance, would have been probably President Biden or uh, French President Macron, but not Xi Jinping. <laughs> he would have been treated well and correctly. Mm-hmm. But so, he, so there are many things going on. Also, India-China relations are not in a good place. So um, they say the Chinese uh, diplomats try to protect their president from anyone who might raise anything he doesn't want to hear about. And every time Modi has met Xi Jinping, he's raised the border issue that, mm-hmm. you know, to fix it. We need to fix the problem. So it's not a good development. Mm. Well, Seema, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, where do you see this new re- this relationship between India and the United States heading? Inevitably, friends with benefits sooner or later have to make some hard decisions about the future, and they have some choices to make. What are your thoughts? I think uh, the two countries have a very, very strong relationship. Uh, It's going from strength to strength. Every time the leaders meet, they, uh, you know, describe it as the most important relationship in the 21st century, etc. And uh, they... Uh, basically, I mean, the Americans have decided that India is the balancing power in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, no two ways about it. So the Americans are putting a lot of importance in this relationship. India, too, is doing the same. It may not do it as obviously as the Americans, uh, because we have we live in a very difficult neighborhood and we have China on the border, Pakistan on the border. So... I think it's just going to go to a better and better place. The people-to-people relationship is so strong now. Family ties between Indian Americans here uh, with their relatives back in India. That will always be a bond the way the geopolitics are right now in a very uh, fractured, fragmented uh, situation. I think the two countries have no choice but to be better and better friends and tackle everything together. Tomorrow's problems are going to be even bigger than uh, what we may imagine uh, as today's problems mm-hmm. with 
have with AI and, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, cyber and things like that. Well, certainly the convergence of our of the, the leadership in technology, which increasingly India is playing and the United States plays, uh, it seems to me that that convergence in technology, whether it's AI, supercomputers, quantum computing, you name it, uh, it looks as though that that promises to be a very a very promising future for uh, for the relationship between the two countries to grow from strength to strength. Absolutely. You know that India and uh, the U.S. have signed a critical um, and emerging technologies agreement covering precisely these new areas where they're going to work together. They are already working together. So, yes, that's the future. And Seema, how can our listeners follow you? Is there a website? Do you have a, a Twitter handle, an X handle? How can they follow you? Yeah, I have an X handle. It's at Seema Sirohi, my full name with no space. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have a website. I'm I'm a Luddite in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> but I put all my articles on Twitter. No, sorry, X. X. <laughs> what a name. What a name. Yeah, I put all my articles on X. <laughs> so if you follow me, you can see whatever I write. And I do a column uh, every other week for my newspaper. Um, so that's basically it. And that's the Economic Times of India. So so our, our readers could also go to that website, the Economic Times yeah. of India, and every other week your article will, they'll find your article in the Economic Times of India. Yes, but everything is behind a paywall, so I, they'll have to subscribe. So better, but I, better, to, I, better put, to look on your X account. Yes, better to look on my X account because I put a PDF of that. Okay. Well, Seema, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your, your insights. I thoroughly recommend your book. It's very readable. You made the the history of this uh, 30-year period that you've observed in Washington uh, very accessible, very readable. It doesn't read like a history book. It doesn't read like a politics book. It reads like a, a journalist sat down and uh, wrote a series of columns and, and very engaging stories. So once again, I thoroughly recommend your book to our listeners. And the title of it again is Friends with Benefits, The India-U.S. Story. Yes, and it's available on Amazon. And thank you for such a nice impromptu review. That was my idea to make all this accessible to the general reader and not be boring, you know, like an academic tome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it, it is not boring in the least. It's very readable, very engaging. And uh, again, I thoroughly recommend it. Looking forward to having you back in the not too distant future, Seema. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 441. The San Francisco Experience podcast is featured on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. We were recently recognized by Feedspot as one of California's top 25 news podcasts. This has been Jim Herlihy 
with the San Francisco Experience podcast coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.